It's, uh, it's great to be with you all here tonight. Uh, just a word of warning to any future speakers, not to go and look at the list of the other people that are teaching Sunday Night Theology before you stand up here. It's quite intimidating. Um, before we get started, I just want to make a couple very quick, explicit comments before I dive into my lecture. Uh, I met a brother this uh, evening who's preaching at a Presbyterian church, and I am going to be speaking tonight as a Baptist about missions, and I am really excited about the work that's going on amongst our Presbyterian and Anglican friends and Assemblies of God and so forth, and everything that you hear that you feel is one to two degrees off because of your ecclesiology, praise God, um, just apply your ecclesiology to what I'm saying, and I think it'll be super, super helpful. Um, my intent tonight is to talk about how the Bible should inform us about missions in the local church, number one. So how should the Bible inform us about missions in the local church? Number two, how has the church, specifically since 1793 and the dawn of the great century of missions, gone about the work of missions, and what can we learn about it? So namely, where do we see good and bad ecclesiology over the last 230 years? And when we don't have good ecclesiology, what happens? And number three, I want to talk about what we should do today in light of our ecclesiology in missions work. So again, I'm assuming, um, well, you should assume that I'm saying things as a Baptist. And again, I encourage anyone who's serving overseas in their missions work to bring their ecclesiology with them. And your missiology, what you do overseas in missions work, should mirror your ecclesiology. You do not drop your theology in a suitcase at the airport as you depart on a, on a plane. You bring it with you. And that's super, super important. All right. So did the apostles primarily fulfill the Great Commission through individual evangelism and discipleship? Is that what we see in Scripture as we read through the book of Acts and as we engage with Paul's letters in the New Testament? Well, the command to make disciples certainly involves telling the message. But I want us to, for a few minutes in the very beginning, examine how the apostles did it. So let's consider the story of the gospel spread in the book of Acts. Well, it turns out that the story of the gospel spread is the story of the spread of churches. Briefly, I want to just encourage you to think about the genre that the book of Acts is. It's narrative. It's narrative. It is not apocalyptic. It is not prophecy. It is not poetry. It's narrative. And so in narrative, we have to do the extra hard work of saying, is this something that the text is telling us, go and do likewise? Or is it just explaining what's going on within the specific moment? And one of the things that I find that is helpful for me as I'm looking at the book of Acts is to layer it with Paul's letters to the churches in the New Testament. There are things that are going on in the book of Acts that are unique because it is a particularly unique time in church history. It's the very beginning of church history after Christ's ascension. And so uh, we'll, I'll, I'll briefly point out what I mean there in a second. So in chapter 2 of, of Acts, Peter preaches a message of repentance and the forgiveness of sin. And those who, were accept, who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. 
I think we have there a local church. They were numbered. There's 3,000 added to them. Just a brief note. Those who accepted his message were baptized. Is Paul advocating there for spontaneous baptism? I don't think he is. I don't think he is. Caleb Morell on the Nine Marks website has a great article on uh, are we commanded in the book of Acts to implement spontaneous baptism. I think what we're seeing here and what we see throughout the book of Acts are uh, spontaneous baptisms at apostolic witness. An apostolic witness is witnessed by apostles. And when the apostles died, the office of apostle died. They are live eyewitnesses of Jesus. And so every time you see spontaneous baptism in the book of Acts, it's accompanying spontaneous, uh, sorry, it's, it's accompanying apostolic witness, and it's accompanying a supernatural sign. Uh, sometimes it would happen where uh, the word was being proclaimed to the Gentiles, and the first Gentiles come to Christ. There is a supernatural sign, like the speaking of tongues, and then there's a spontaneous baptism. So hermeneutically, what I do is I'm looking at, okay, as I'm reading through the book of Acts, do I see these things happening, or Paul instructing on these things in the rest of the New Testament? No, on spontaneous baptism. There's no instructions there. Number two, what are some of the common themes? Well, there's apostolic witness, and there's supernatural signs. And so for me, again, you might come to a different hermeneutical conclusion. I pray that all of your convictions are from the Bible. For me... I look at that and say, okay, therefore, I'm not seeing a command to do spontaneous baptism. I'm seeing circumstances that are happening as the early church is being formed that uh, there is no church. Like, the church literally doesn't exist. There's no people being sent out from a local church. In Acts 2, uh, they're not being sent out from the church anywhere. This is, this is the very first church, the church in Jerusalem, unique moment in history, Okay. So moving back into chapter 11 of Acts, those who were scattered by the persecution that comes in Jerusalem, they go to Antioch, and they proclaim the good news about the Lord Jesus, in verse 20, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. We see that in Acts chapter 11. In chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas visit Iconium, and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed in Iconium. Praise God. In chapter 18, the Corinthian church was planted when many were heard and believed and were baptized, in verse 8. In chapter 19, Paul preaches in Ephesus, and many are converted. Now, again, the text never says explicitly, and they, they planted a church. We don't see that. I often hear people say to me, church planting is in the Bible, so we shouldn't go church, plant churches, um, because it doesn't explicitly say they planted a church. But by the time we get to chapter 20, we know that's exactly what happened. Paul sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. The book of Acts concludes with Paul preaching in Rome. And of course, there's eventually a church in Rome or churches in Rome because we have the letter to the church in Rome. So what do we see the apostles doing in the book of Acts? Well, we see them preaching, and we see them gathering churches. Friends, I, I'm firmly convinced, firmly convinced that churches are the center of God's Great Commission plan. Everywhere that Paul went, he not only evangelized and made converts, 
but he stayed and made disciples by establishing a church and bringing them to maturity in Christ. When he could stay. So again, another little hermeneutical interpretation issue that we're facing these days in the book of Acts is when people move from area to area to area very, very quickly. So that book, No Shortcuts to Success, it's telling people, let's slow down and do things carefully and methodically and well for the glory of God. And one of the, again, the rebuttals to that is, well, when we read the book of Acts, especially in Paul's first journey, he's just jumping from place to place to place, and he was just planting churches. I, again, as I read the book of Acts, notice on his first missionary journey, do this in your reading this week, Paul never left an area without being chased out from that area. He was being chased out. He longed to be with these churches, and the Lord supernaturally, providentially would move him via persecution to another area where he would go and evangelically, evangelically, uh, evangelistically witness. So Paul had a passion to reach those who had never heard the gospel. We see that in Romans 15 where he famously declares that he had resolved to preach the gospel where Christ had not been named. A fire had burned within him for those who had been told to see, but had never, uh, and sorry, and for those who had never heard to understand the message of God's grace in Christ. Evangelism led to the establishment of churches under local spiritual leadership of the apostles and other elders, where the word is rightly preached and baptism and the Lord's Supper are rightly administered. 1 Corinthians. Paul cared about the local church. That's why we have Paul's letters. Galatians, cared about the church in Galatia, and in Ephesus, and Philippi, and Colossae, and Corinth, Thessalonica. He cared about these churches. Even from afar, Paul urged Titus to raise up elders to teach sound doctrine in the church, to combat false teaching, and for the edification of the saints. Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to shepherd that church. And the letter that he wrote to that church has some of the most amazing theological fireworks that we see in the Bible. Paul was committed to strengthening existing churches. So we don't just see Paul as a church planter, we also see Paul as a church strengthener throughout the New Testament. A large percentage of his ministry during his travels was dedicated to ministering to established congregations spread throughout the Roman world. So, for example, each of his three major missionary journeys included return visits to churches that he had already planted. The purpose of Paul's second missionary journey in Acts 15 was to visit the churches that he, had, and, he and Barnabas had founded on their first journey. Acts repeatedly reports how Paul and his companions strategically traveled through the reach regions, quote-unquote, strengthening their churches. So, friends... As we think about missions, we often hear about the word pioneer missions, and pioneer missions is super important. There are places around the world that don't have access to the gospel because no one has ever shared the gospel with them, Romans 10. But we should not neglect the strengthening up to maturity of existing churches for the sake of pioneer missions. We live in an either-or world, and friends, I want to commend you if you're thinking about mission strategy as a local church Think about the both and. Our missions should be pioneer. We should endeavor to get, get the gospel to those who don't have it. 
but it should also be pastoral. Paul believed uh, just as much in teaching as he did in reaching. Again, otherwise, we would not have the letters in the New Testament that Paul wrote. Church was planted, moved on, my job's done, let's move on to the next location. No, he continually labored for those churches that were planted. As Paul plans his missionary trips over the years, the needs of the churches, and not just the needs of the unreached, were on his itinerary. On the other hand, his ongoing training and strengthening work amongst the church played an important role in his strategy to reach more unreached. So in his letter to Rome, to church in Rome, he can't help but strengthening them in the gospel. Such rich doctrine in the book of Rome that was going to put steel in their spine, right there in the heart of the, the empire. But what is the letter to Romans? Most basically, it's a letter trying to raise support for his work amongst the unreached. Hey, I want to go to Spain, Romans 15. In light of all that I've just shared with you about the glories of the gospel and all of the marvelous works that God has done through the glory of the gospel, would you support me as I go to make this known amongst Spain? So, missiologically, I don't think it's an accident that our organization is called Reaching and Teaching because missiologically and strategically, I want to encourage local churches and those considering going overseas to not just reach, but to also teach. Missions work is not just evangelism. It's not just evangelism. To focus only on evangelism is a short, short, short strategy, and we do not see that in the pages of the New Testament. Friends, the local church is where discipleship happens, where people are built up to maturity. So I want to I encourage you as you read through the New Testament, see that the aim of missions work is the establishment of God-glorifying churches. See, the Word of God creates us as God's people. And ordinances mark us off as God's people. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. These things are important elements in our local churches. They're necessary and so even as we're thinking about what type of churches should be established around the world, you don't have a church if you don't have the ordinances. We're going to talk a little bit about Mark Dever's book, The Gospel Made Visible, in just a few moments. But I love that, I love that um, illustration that he uses, that local churches and communities make the gospel visible to a watching world. Uh, I'm, I know that's true in Wilmington, Delaware. I'm sure it's true in Olney. I know it's true here in Westchester. An embassy, we're, we're, we're standing where an embassy of the king meets, and it's making the gospel visible to this watching community. So the establishing of healthy, God-glorifying churches is the central task of Christian missions. And I truly believe that the establishing of God-glorifying churches is God's program for advancing the gospel throughout the world. I think anything that is called missions that stops short of seeing a church established and strengthened is not missions. If the UN can do it, it's not missions. If Water for Africa or Asia or Europe, I guess they need natural gas now these days, it's not really water. If, if a secular organization can do it, friends, it's not missions. There's got to be a local church there. We're missing the key element. 
Establishing healthy churches must mean also that we look for ways to strengthen local churches and national leaders. We see that example not only in Acts with Paul's visits, but we're also seeing again that pattern throughout the New Testament with his letters. There is a staggering need across the world for well-trained leaders, for theological training, and deep discipleship. And we're going to talk about why that exists in just a few minutes. But consider for a second, let's go to Matthew chapter 28. I know you're waiting for me to say, turn to your Bibles. Matthew chapter 28. This is the Great Commission. Matthew has just laid out over 28 chapters how Jesus is the promised Messiah that was promised to the Jewish people throughout their entire history. He starts off with his genealogy. And here he is landing the plane, so to speak, in his gospel. Starting in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So consider the teaching element of the Great Commission Friends, I think this is primarily fulfilled within the context of a local church. All authority in heaven. We read about Christ's authority in Matthew 16 and 18 as he hands over the keys of the kingdom to the church, to local churches. So that authority has been given to me. Think back to Matthew 16 and 18. Local churches, you now have the keys of the kingdom. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Can individual Christians disciple? Absolutely. I think the most paramount act of discipleship in a Christian's life is to sit under the preaching of God's word on a Sunday morning. That's that's the most important part, part of my discipleship. Therefore, the education of the pastor who is in the pulpit administering the word and preaching to the gathered congregation to disciple them and build them up in the knowledge and fear of the Lord is important, and it should not be neglected. We don't have time in this lecture, but I could tell you story after story after story of places like Latin America and in, in, in the Amazon, in Peru, where you've got uh, brothers who literally were handed Bibles because they had an influence amongst their community as a wave of missionaries came through. And some of them professed Christ. They were given a Bible. Those with the greatest amount of tribal authority were given the opportunity to lead that new congregation that I would venture to say was not yet a congregation because it had an unregenerate pastor who was sleeping under a tree getting dreams on a Saturday night on what to talk about on a Sunday morning to his gathered church. That happens time and time and time again. That's not, again, what we're seeing in the New Testament. We're seeing the building up of pastors and of local churches with doctrine. Jesus intends for teaching to be done in the context of the administration of the ordinances. All right, baptism and the Lord's Supper, those are our ordinances. I'm assuming we're all Protestants in this room. We got two of them. (laughs) Baptism and the Lord's Supper. They mark us off as God's people. 
We baptize Christians based on a credible profession of faith. And who baptizes Christians? The answer key, local churches do. We're not in the book of Acts where you've got apostles walking around and you've got only once in a lifetime conversions of the very first Gentiles to being entered into the kingdom of God. That's a one-time supernatural event. We don't model our practice after that. We model our practice after the New Testament pattern of church. Local churches affirm the profession of Christians and baptize them into membership. Now, again, I'm speaking as a Baptist, and my Presbyterian friends, we don't have enough time for that. The next time Mark Dever's here, I'm sure he'd love to talk to about it. <laughs> or Raymond will happily stand in. The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. I'm an advocate for taking the Lord's Supper with Christians. So at our local church, at Third Avenue Baptist Church, we have a closed Lord's Supper. It's not closed, like the brethren, where you have to be a member of this local church to, commun to, to have the Lord's Supper with this church. But if you're a baptized member in good standing of a local church that preaches the same gospel as this local church, we would love to take the Lord's Supper with you. There's a few things in that that are important. Preaches the same gospel as we preach. And you're a baptized member in good standing, which means you haven't been church disciplined, which means that there's a local church that's watching over your life and doctrine. And if you're not living as a Christian and you've been disciplined out because you are not living as a Christian, you cannot publicly identify with this congregation in this moment as a Christian. Now that's important in places like Westchester, where the gospel is all around. And what I mean by that is that People can turn on TBN if they've got the right satellite station. And maybe not the gospel is always going to be on TBN, but maybe just maybe someone's going to share the gospel on TBN. Or they can pick up a Bible at a Barnes & Noble and they can read it in their language. Not many good books in Barnes & Noble, but there might be some good gospel-centered books in Barnes & Noble. The gospel is around. And it's still important for us to rightly identify this is a Christian, this is a not a Christian. And I know Raymond. I know that if someone was a member of this local church and they were a student who was at Westchester University and they're going out partying every single night and they're getting drunk on the street out in front of us and they're called to repentance and they don't repent, they're caught in unrepentant sin, eventually this local church is going to vote them out of membership as an act of church discipline. What that communicates is to this local church, you better watch your life and doctrine, but it also communicates it to the entire community of Westchester. As Joe, who's been getting drunk, drunk on the street, says to his friends, this is kind of embarrassing, but I'm not even a member of that local church anymore because I'm, I'm a drunk. Can you believe that like, they actually voted me out of membership? And what he's communicating to his non-Christian friends is that this local church takes the gospel so seriously that the hypocrite that they've been hanging out with for the last few months, this local church doesn't even identify them as a Christian. That's a gospel witness. And that's important everywhere. It's important like in, in cities like this or towns. Is it a township? I'm learning U.S. geography all the time. It's a borough. Man, I'm from Canada. We just have cities and towns and villages. But all right, it's a borough. That's important in a place like this. But friends, Go with me in your minds to a Hindu village where the gospel has been proclaimed for the very first time 
And instead of Joe being drunk on the street, it's Rupinder who is continuing to worship Hindu gods and whose pastor has told him, take down the shrine. We worship one God, one God alone, the one true God, and Rupinder won't repent. And all of his family knows that he's still worshiping his gods, and he's living a life of a hypocrite. Rupinder needs to be disciplined in India. Not only for the sake of all the new Christians that have gathered together, friends, forsake your idols. We worship the one true God. And they need to check themselves as they vote their brother, who was, they thought their brother, Rupinder, out and is not acting like a brother. Sometimes I use the word brother so flippantly that in illustrations like that, I'm like, wait a second, he's probably not a brother. And that's what we're doing when we're church disciplining. You're not acting like a brother, Rupinder. That's important for that new baby church, but it equally evangelizes the gospel to the community. No idol worshipers here. We are marked off as people of the one true God. Ordinances matter in missions. And when missionaries go overseas and they wrongly administer the Lord's Supper, as cool things to do amongst their missions team because they don't have a proper understanding of the ordinances or they have a wrong understanding of baptism and people aren't being baptized into membership of a church that's going to hold them accountable, but they're being baptized by a missionary who doesn't even speak their language in a river and then left with no discipleship, we are unintentionally, potentially damning them to a life in hell with our actions. It's serious. Because what's happening is that person who comes through that village and does that has just told that person, you're a Christian, and they leave going, I'm a Christian. Whatever that means, I'm a Christian. And the next time missionaries come into that village, hey, we got a bunch of Christians here. They're professing that they're Christians, and those missionaries will move on to the next village, not understanding that those people were never saved in the first place. We need to establish God-glorifying churches that take our ecclesiology seriously. So that's the book of Acts with a little rabbit trail on the end. What happened in 1793 that sparked the great century of missions that mathematically was longer than a century? It was 117 years. What caused it to end, and what have we been doing since, and what can we learn? Forgive me, it's going to feel like three mini-lectures in this lecture. I couldn't choose one. I don't think Raymond's ever going to invite me back, so I was like, i got to get it all on the table. <laughs> kind of like we went to a ball game last night. I went to Shake Shack. I can't turn down a Shake Shack, and I ordered a double, and they gave me two burgers instead. And so I kind of feel like you came here for a lecture, you're going to get three instead. So, <laughs> so a Harvard philosopher named Santana stated this, he who does not learn from the errors of history is contemned to repeat them. Looking at our history gives us perspective and it also helps us to discern. So again, so step one, let's look at what the Bible has to say about missions Friends, those are just a few kind of hermeneutical keys that I wanted to give you and a few examples out of Scripture of, as you're engaging with larger missions topics and talking to missionaries that are going out of your church. 
hopefully put some steel in your spine as you pick up other books about missions, just compare them to what God's Word says. And then let's look at history. So history gives us perspective and it helps us to discern better. 1793, William Carey, pastoring in England. At this time, many pastors in the 18th century believed that the Great Commission was only given to the apostles, and that converting the heathen was not a concern for the present. And a, an enthusiastic pastor once said to William Carey, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. This was the age of hyper-Calvinism. So if God's going to elect somebody, they're going to be saved. You don't have any responsibility as a Christian to go and, and evangelize. I'm moving my arms around too much. It's taken off my microphone. So in 1792, Carey publishes an 87-page book named An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. That's the short name. The book would seek to argue against this hyper-Calvinistic understanding of evangelism and missions, and shortly after it was published, Carey goes to Nottingham, England. It's an associational meeting with other pastors. He preaches on the need and the obligation to go to the nations, famously preaches on Isaiah 54, and challenges the listeners to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Perhaps you've heard that phrase before. The very next day, the pastors organize a mission society known as, okay, Baptists, we're not very original with our names. It's the Baptist Missionary Society. I guess as the very first Baptist Missionary Society, you get to call yourself the Baptist Missionary Society. It's kind of like Southern Seminary, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. <laughs> Carey offers to be the second missionary commissioned by them that day. And as I look at the records, I have yet to see any correspondence between him and his local church before he put his name forward to be the second one sent out. Aspiring missionaries, don't do that. We can learn good things from William Carey. We can learn things we should not do from William Carey. You should not sign up to go to the mission field without talking to your local church, especially when you're their pastor, Raymond. <laughs> your elders asked me to mention that to you. As far as I can tell, he didn't even talk to his wife before making that decision. Bad plan number two. And originally his wife refused to go. We don't have enough time, but it's all laid out in his biography. Their marriage suffered as a result of that. But in 1793, William Carey heads overseas. And what does he do? He goes on to be the father of modern missions, not only in the way he taught about the importance of missions, but the way he lived it out. He was hugely involved in translation work and evangelism and discipleship. One of my colleagues at Reaching and Teaching is coming up with a small book, going to be published in early 2024, where he talks about the ecclesiology of Kerry, which I think is an underdeveloped kind of discipline. I'm glad our brother looked at, looked at it. But he has went down and researched so for two, two and a half years, William Carey's membership remained in England, and he was not regularly gathering with Christians in India. And then finally, he writes a letter proving that finally, he says to the church, 
in December of 1795, sorry, he writes to the Baptist Missionary Society, I can with pleasure inform you of our welfare and that of our children, and further, that a Baptist church is formed in this distant quarter of the globe. Our members are but four in number, Mr. Thomas, myself, a Mr. Long, and a Mr. Powell. Mr. Long had been baptized by Mr. Thomas when he was in India before, and on the 1st of November this year, I baptized Mr. Powell. At this place, Malda, we were solemnly united that day as a church of Christ, and the Lord's Supper has since been twice administered among us. It's interesting, he was a particular Baptist, and they had talked about how you needed to have a, a letter transferred to a new location whenever you were moving from one church to another. And so he asked, I love this, he asked the church that he was pastoring in England that had sent him out to transfer him by letter of membership to the church in India. And the church of Harvey Lane in England, when receiving his request, noted in their records this, by a letter from Mr. William Carey, our former worthy pastor, whom we resigned to the mission in Hindostan in Asia, that's what India used to be called, we were informed that a small church was formed at Mudnabadi, uh, Mud and he wished a dismission from us to it, that he might become a member and also have an opportunity of becoming its pastors. We therefore agreed not only to send his dismission, but also to insert it at large in our church book. And at this point, the writing in large letters. To preserve to posterity the memory and event so pleasing and important, the planting of a gospel church in Asia. Carey's disposition in his letters to his friends changed at this moment. He struggled for two and a half years without regular fellowship with Christians in a local church that was his own. His local church at that point where his membership was was thousands of miles away in England. And they would go on and him and future teammates and different churches that were planted and established, they would focus on things like baptism and the Lord's Supper. And who takes the Lord's Supper? And they would debate these issues as, as elders in their local churches. And they majored on their covenant, good, good things. They would see Indian come to Christ and be baptized into membership of their churches, and they would be pastored there. William Carey, phenomenal, phenomenal man who did much, much for the kingdom of God. William Carey would never return home, dying in 1834 among the people that he had given his life to reach with the gospel. He served over 40 years in India. He preached, taught, translated the Bible into Sanskrit, during his years in India, he translated the Bible into Bengali, Oriya, Marathi, Hindi, Assamese, and Sanskrit, as well as completing partial translations into 29 other languages and dialects. Friends, we should send missionaries to go translate the Bible into other languages, but we should not neglect the local church. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. We also have Adoniram Judson. He's one of my favorites. Part of, my favorite, part of his story that I think makes him one of my favorites is he left America as a Congregationalist and through just, I guess, the badgering and debating with Luther Rice on the boat on the way over to India initially, he was convinced to being a Baptist and they had to send Luther Rice back to America 
to start working with the Baptists because the Congregationalists could no longer hold the rope because they had different theological convictions. And it mattered so much that Luther Rice diverted back to the U.S. and started working so that they could find a, a fellowship of churches that were Baptist that would be able to hold the ropes because they noticed that ecclesiology mattered. And keep going on. You got brothers like George Lyle. George Lyle served in Jamaica. He was converted in 1773 as a slave in the church of his master. He actually went out as a missionary before William Carey did in 1793. His ministry, he never received or accepted remuneration for his ministry in Jamaica, most of it, most of it which was directed to the slaves. He preached, baptized hundreds, organized them into congregations, and they were governed by a church covenant that he adapted to the Jamaican context. And by 1814, his efforts had produced, either directly or indirectly, some 8,000 Baptists in Jamaica. At times, he was harassed by the white colonists and by government authorities for, quote-unquote, agitating the slaves. And he was imprisoned many times, once for over three years. We have John Payton. This one I put in there for our Presbyterian friends. John Payton spent much of his life in the New Hebrides islands of the South Pacific. And he was a man that was an incredible, incredible minister of the gospel in Glasgow, Scotland. And some of his Presbyterian leaders actually pulled him aside and discouraged him from going overseas because of how fruitful his ministry was in the streets of Scotland. One an older gentleman famously exclaimed to him, the cannibals, you will be eaten by the cannibals. And Peyton responds back with this, Mr. Dixon, that's the man's name, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Over a great many years, Peyton did pioneering missionary work amongst the New Hebrides, amongst an unreached people group. The Scottish Presbyterians would send one of their very, very best, who would have had an immensely, immensely fruitful pulpit ministry. And they chose to send him off to the New Hebrides. He saw remarkable conversions. He endured much suffering. And today, Christianity is the dominant religion in these islands, now known as Vanuatu. I read a statistic recently that towards the end of his missionary career, he would go throughout Australia and mobilize for work amongst the other islands. And the statistic is that one out of every five Presbyterian ministers in Australia was mobilized by John Payton to leave their congregation and go to the New Hebrides. He was a fantastic mobilizer. And churches in Australia were sending some of their very, very best. Amy Carmichael, Hudson Taylor, the names could go on and on and on. But I want to stop for a second at Hudson Taylor because I think it's important for us to understand where we are now in light of Hudson Taylor. See, Hudson Taylor went to China. He was originally sent out with a, an association of churches in England that were sending him overseas to do work in China. And he's, he got there, he saw all of the work that was being done in major cities and wanted to press it into the interior. And he wanted to contextualize in his dress 
so that the gospel would not be hindered by his appearance. It would not be a stumbling block. And so he wanted to dye his hair and wear Chinese clothes. And the association pushed back on that. And eventually he formed China Inland Mission in order to give him the freedom that he so desired to contextualize the gospel locally. China Inland Mission is now known as OMF, Overseas Mission Fellowship. And I think it's important to note that it's one of the early kind of big agencies as we know them now. We're an association of churches, which was up until that point the main sense of, of sending, was replaced by a missions organization. Some of that was necessary, he saw, but I think one of the things that it did was it set us on a trajectory where missions, quote-unquote, agencies became more and more mainstream in missions world. And if you were to ask me, Ryan, what would be the ideal sending apparatus here in the year 2023? Truth be told, I would advocate for associations of like-minded churches here in Philadelphia to send from their own overseas. I just think there's just something beautiful in that. I think there's incredible networking that happens in that, but that's not where we are in this phase of Christian history. And so we're going to deal with the cards that have been dealt to us. It would be great if we could get there one day. 1888. This is 23 years after the finding of China Inland Mission. This is another flashpoint in missions history that's super, super important for us to understand, for us to understand where we are. 1888, 250 students meet at Mount Hermon, Massachusetts, from 100 different colleges and universities. This was the very first Christian student conference. Think like the original cross conference, or Urbana. This is the OG on the last day of the conference, a man named Robert Wilder urgently appeared to the students to commit themselves to the evangelization of the world in this generation. That's a very important phrase because that phrase has been used for almost 140 years since to mobilize students. Who doesn't want to be part of the evangelization of the world in this generation? Talk to me and introduse me to some 18 to 30-year-old 30, who doesn't think that they're going to be able to impact the world. Then as you get into your 30s and 40s, you start looking back going like, oh man, I didn't even impact my family as much as I wanted to. But on the last day of this conference, they hear this kind of catchphrase, and 100 students signed a pledge called the Princeton Pledge that stated, I purpose God willing to become a foreign missionary. That was the beginning of what was known as the student volunteer movement. So again, 1865, you've got the founding of China Inland Mission, Missions Org, kind of birth. 1888, you've got the founding of the student volunteer movement. Wilder would eventually move to India, and a man named John Mott would take leadership. His goal would be to mobilize thousands to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth, and the student volunteer movement would become heavily influenced by social priorities the ecumenical movement, which we're about to talk about, and would effectively mobilize thousands of students to the ends of the earth to do a number of different things. Again, it's not bad to mobilize students. I think that's, it's a good thing, but what are we mobilizing them to? Six years ago, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And at that moment, the most important thing in my well-being, 
as a cancer patient, was my doctor. I wanted the very, very best hematologist, oncologist that I could get in Toronto. Their credentials meant a lot to me. And to be honest, as my doctor walked into the office for the very first time, I had a sigh of relief because she clearly was not 21 years old. Now, there were 21-year-olds working around the hospital doing various different things, but the doctor that was charged with concocting the chemical concoction that would save my life knew what she was doing. She was an expert in it. And my concern with the student volunteer movement and what we saw in the hundred and something years since then is we sent a lot of people to be experts in things that they were not experts in. Pastors, 18 to 30 year olds who want to go overseas for the sake of the gospel amongst the nations, we need them. But do not send an 18 year old non-expert to do what 30, 35, 25 year old experts that have been examined as elder qualified can do. I would not have allowed a 19-year-old to inject my body with anything. If we take our physical health that seriously, why are we not taking the spiritual health of the nations that seriously? Now, I'm not saying there isn't a place for 18 to 30-year-olds. I think they're super important, they're ambitious, they're rambunctious, there's enthusiasm, there's that can-do-it attitude that is absolutely necessary in cross-cultural missions. But when we're talking about the aim of the church, the aim of missions is the local church. If your aspiring missionary can't define a local church, please do not send them to the nations. Because then what they're going to get is not a local church. They're going to get anything but a local church. And now you've left a bunch of people inoculated from the gospel because they think they're Christians and they're not. Because there's been no true gospel witness, perhaps, and no local church there to guard the gospel. But still, we can rejoice that there was good work done through the student volunteer movement. Another thing we noticed in the student volunteer movement was that there isn't a lot of interaction with local churches that were looking at the literature. We're not seeing a ton of correspondence between the leaders of the student volunteer movement and the local churches of the student volunteers. Fast forward, next flashpoint, 1910. 1910 is a very important event. It was the Edinburgh Council. It was held to study missionary movements and the critical issues identified at the time. The student volunteer movement had sent an entire generation, over 22 years, thousands to the ends of the earth. Theological liberalism was taking root in the U.S. church, much like it already had in the European church. There was a higher criticism of scriptures that led to a denial of biblical authority and errancy. At this time, there was increased economic divide resulting from the Industrial Revolution. The social gospel was becoming more popular, where there was a focus on social needs and social issues prioritized over the need of personal salvation from sin. Since the days of Cary, missionaries believed that the gospel would transform cultures. So there was a debate over what type of changes and how they would come about. You had some missionaries wanting to create Western-style schools to educate future leaders. You had others that believed that Christians converted by the power of the gospel would change and influence society. So in 1910, 1,200 delegates get together in Edinburgh. They're from a number of missions agencies. 
Some were denominationally affiliated, some not. And the purpose was to devise a global strategy of world mission. So high Anglicans and Quakers and Lutherans and leaders from China Inland Mission and mainline churches and faith missions all came together. It was marked by prayer. That's a good thing. But these people in 1910 did not yet understand and realize the problems that had been caused by colonization. So even as you had good gospel witness going during the great century of missions, it would often be mixed in with colonization. At this point, the word ecumenical meant the worldwide character of the missionary task. That's what the word ecumenical originally meant in missions. Various councils form out of the Edinburgh Council of 1910. And then what happens in 1914? See if there's any true world history people here. It wasn't 1916, it was 1914. World War I. World War I breaks out in Europe. And World War I led to a lesser dependency on Europe for answers. All the supposed Christians in Europe are fighting with each other and killing millions. Okay, so maybe they don't have all the answers. So after World War I, more councils are held with more ethnic diversity starting to be present, which is a good thing. And what became known as the International Missionary Council stream was formed. There was also a life and work movement that was formed through ecumenical churches at this time that was focused on the church's response to communism and war and revolution and the rise of totalitarianism. Then you had a third stream called the Faith and Order Movement that was focused on theology. Three streams, international missions, life and work, faith and order. Soon, the two streams of life and work and faith and order combined together became known as the Worldwide Council of Churches. And the international mission stream, which was looking over at that going, we were the whole reason this, we all got together in the first place in 1910, decided to merge hoping that they would pull these other two streams back towards missions. They wanted it to be a missionary engine for the Worldwide Council of Churches, and that did not happen. The other streams influenced the Worldwide Council of Churches away from a focus on worldwide evangelism and focused exclusively on political and social issues. Ecumenicism failed. And in 1974, a second ecumenical movement started, focused on worldwide evangelism. John Stott was the primary author of the Lausanne Covenant. It was a theological statement that now serves as the umbrella for the Lausanne movement. Lausanne is broad denominationally, and it states that human needs and social transformation must always go hand in hand with evangelism. And since then, there have been three, and since 1974, there have been three worldwide congresses that have been growing in attendance. Listen, friends, I'm thankful that Christians want to get together and talk about the evangelization of the world, but even within the Lausanne movement in recent years, we are starting to see a shift away from the evangelization of the world towards other things. I would also venture to say that it's very, very difficult to partner broadly with broad theological convictions. One of the things that came out of 1794 was this incredible focus on unreached peoples. I think it was one of the main shifts in the 20th century. 
Very, very important flashpoint. Ralph Winter stands up in 1974 and argues that the Great Commission should be thought of in terms of people groups rather than nations. Go take the gospel to all nations. People are thinking geopolitical groups. And Ralph Winter argues in 1974 that it was actually ethno-linguistic groups. We don't have time to get into that tonight, but there are various opinions on that. But there was increased effort on this concept of people groups. Today, some say there, there's 24,000 people groups in the world. Some say 17,000. Some say 11,500, on and on and on and on. But there was a focus on unreached. According to the International Mission Board, a people group is considered unreached if they have no church movement, having sufficient strength, resources, and commitment to sustain and ensure the continuous multiplication of churches. What does that mean? It means that unreached is any place where a people group in which less than 2% of the population is evangelical Christian. And so since 1974, there was this massive push, let's reach the unreached. Again, we, in this church this morning, we looked at Psalm 97. God has a heart for the nations. But what exactly Scripture means by nations is still a debated thing. But it became one of the central rallying cries. Another thing that happened in the last century, Donald McGavran. Donald McGavran taught on the homogeneous principle, where churches would grow if everybody in that local church was of the same socioeconomic background had the same political persuasion, looked the same. It's called the homogeneous principle. I think it's blatantly racist. Look around. There's diversity even within this room. And when you listen to guys like Rick Warren and Bill Hybels talk about the establishing of their megachurches and the strategy that got them started, they were influenced by Donald McGavran. They would go to affluent communities and program church in such a way that it was appealing to suburbanites. Now, they would be happily planting churches in undernourished areas within their communities, but their churches, their mega churches, were multi-site, multi-campus, on and on and on and on and on, but they were going for suburbia with the program, all influenced to grow as fast as possible. And that was what was being taught within seminaries in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Then we get to early 2000. So again, we've got an influence on people groups. We've got an emphasis on church growth within our seminaries and within our churches and the whole megachurch idea that we had been seeing play out over the decades. And then you've got a concept of Matthew 24, 14, where it talks about this gospel we proclaim amongst all nations and then the end will come. And the missions world grabs that and goes, wait a second. This gospel will be proclaimed to all nations and then the end will come? So if we reach the unreached, Jesus is going to come back. We can pull forward the coming of Christ. And that really dictated mission strategy for years. Because then the conversation happens How do we do it quickly? We want Jesus to come back. Who doesn't want Jesus to come back? 
How do we get Jesus to come back faster? We reach the unreached. And out of that comes the church planting movement, Ephesus, and the disciple making movement, Ephesus. And we don't have enough time to even talk about those tonight, but you really should read No Shortcuts to Success. In 2000, a booklet was entitled Church Planting Movements. It later became a full length book in 2004. And friends, it's difficult to emphasize to you how influential this idea of church planting movements has been on missions. Leaves us with important and lingering questions like, what is the job of a missionary? Do we share the gospel and start churches, or do we train leaders leaders to facilitate movements? And that has been the emphasis on missions over the last few decades. Again, when I read the New Testament... I do not see Paul emphasizing training up of leaders to facilitate movements. I see him having a distinct care for local congregations on all of his journeys. Friends, missions history has taught us much. They've taught us good things, like a focus on translation and church planning, like William Carey, and it has taught us, unfortunately, the dangers of ecumenicism. I love when we get to partner in the gospel, when we're together for the gospel. I'm going to use that phrase. It's good to be together for the gospel. But Baptists and Presbyterians should not plant churches together. They should cheer each other on in a Catholic spirit in the planting of churches. But if we go out and we evangelize in Westchester, a Presbyterian church, or let's, let's say it's not Westchester. Let's say, brother, what's your name of your church again? Grace Covenant. So Grace Covenant and Westchester, Christ Church Westchester. Y'all love each other. You love Jesus. You want to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so you decide we're going to send some missionaries to join the Tiptons in Japan. And they go and they learn language. And you've got these two couples that are there. And they've got enough language to start sharing the gospel. And they lead someone to Christ. What do we do with the children? Do we baptize them? Do we not baptize them? No. <laughs> That's a live question. Your little baby team is going to have to r- struggle with a real theological thing. And guess what the impulse has been over the last hundred and something years? If lostness is the main issue, let's not talk about the theology because that's going to cause division. And what we have done time and time and time again around the world is we have neglected theology for the sake of evangelism. Again, we don't see that in the New Testament. And you've got teams that are either willingly disobeying the Bible and their own convictions Because if the Tiptons decide for the sake of team unity to just go along with the rest of the team and baptize the babies, they are now disobeying what they believe the Bible to say. That is not a good thing for Christians to do, and it is definitely not a good example for new Christians in Japan. These things matter. Let me finish off with this, just some practical applications. John Piper, can't do a lecture on missions without quoting Piper. 
Worship is the goal and the fuel of missions. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions is our way of saying the joy of knowing Christ is not a private or tribal or national or ethnic privilege. It is for all, and that's why we go, because we have tasted the joy of worshiping Jesus, and we want all the families of the earth included. Those words have rallied at least two generations to go to the nations. Let the Nations Be Glad, I think, is one of the most impactful books that has ever been written on missions. He says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, quoting Psalm 22, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. So Piper goes on to say, seeking the worship of the nations is fueled by the joy of our own worship. You can't commend what you don't cherish. You can't proclaim what you don't prize. Worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. That's what Piper would write. Mark Dever, writing in Compelling Community, writes about gospel-revealing communities, local churches. He says, in gospel-revealing community, many relationships would never exist but for the truth and power of the gospel, either because of the depth of care for each other or because two people in relationship have little in common with Christ. While affinity-based relationships, homogeneous relationships, while affinity-based relationships also thrive in this church, they're not the focus Instead, church leaders of healthy churches focusing on helping people out of their comfort zones to cultivate relationships that would not only be possible apart from the supernatural. And so this community reveals the power of the gospel. Friends, our world is increasingly fragmented. Increasingly fragmented. And as we gather together as local churches and we make the gospel visible, one of the things that we make visible is the supernatural, wall-breaking power of the gospel. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. And so if we buy into missions practice, unfortunately, of the last 50 years, we're seeing churches in Philadelphia being planted by well-meaning individuals that are only congregating people of the same socioeconomic and racial backgrounds and political persuasions. Why? Because that church will grow. And that has been exported, again, to the ends of the earth. So we can go to a place like Dubai. And in Dubai, there's this wonderfully beautiful gospel preaching church called the Evangelical Christian Church of Dubai. And you were to show up, you would see dozens and dozens and dozens of nationalities. Again, modern mission strategy is don't bring them all into the same room together because that church is never going to grow. And despite all of what sociologists would say, that church is flourishing. Why? Because it's an incredible embassy of the king that's shining bright the power of the gospel to a watching world. You have Indians and Pakistanis who often have nuclear bombs pointed at each other, worshiping together under the authority of King Jesus. Beautiful. You have Palestinians and Israelis worshiping together, even as CNN and Fox News and whatever else is on TV is saying that these, these people should be at odds with each other. Their greatest commitment isn't to Palestine or Israel, it's to King Jesus. Hindus and Muslims background believers, now coming together under the name of Jesus. I want to advocate that we get away from what sociology has told us about missions and what well-intentioned missions thinkers have 
thought about missions and trying to get our churches to grow and to finish the task as fast as possible. And friends, I want to commend to you that yes, worship is the goal of missions, but our worship should be in God-glorifying churches that are heterogeneous, that we can reveal the gospel to a watching world as it breaks down the walls of hostility amongst us. So friends, the local church, I believe, is the normal means that God has given us to fulfill the Great Commission. If we agree with Piper that worship fuels missions and is the ultimate goal of missions, friends, I want to advocate to you that the local church is the engine. Recognizing God's glory as the ultimate goal, the church is both the means and the goal of missions. Think about the commands of the Great Commission that we read in Matthew 28. Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. Who does all of those things? Who sends out going Christians, both locally and globally, to make disciples? The church. Who recognizes and affirms that people are Christians by baptizing them? The church. Who helps them to grow into maturity by teaching them? The church. So sending agencies, missions foundations, training organizations, gospel tools, media, all of it can be utilized in making disciples. We hijack God's intended missions methodology when we bypass the local church. We should affirm the primacy of the local church in the sending and oversight of missionaries. One of the things that was glaringly missing in my facetal snapshot of missions history over the last 115 years is a local church. Why? Because somehow, after the great century of missions, churches were duped into thinking that they knew nothing about missions. So the five or six pastors that are here in this room right now, I want to tell you, you know more about missions than what the missions mechanism has told you you do. And I would dare to say you know more about missions than most missiologists today. Why? Because you know the church, I pray. Because 95% of missiology is actually ecclesiology. The church must disciple and train and equip the missionary for godliness and the development of his or her spirit-given gifts. The church must affirm a missionary's calling in the direction that he or she senses the Lord leading. Turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Please. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, who we know as Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Notice the dual sending here. The Holy Spirit sends Paul and Barnabas, yes, and the church, in sensitivity to what God is doing, commissions these first missionaries and sends them off. One of the things that greatly concerns me today is the proliferation of taking new Christians and turning them into missionaries. And as I research it, it looks as if Paul, there was a decade of time between Paul's conversion on the road to, on the road to Damascus. Man, it's 7 o'clock and my brain is exhausted. Trick question. On the road to Damascus... And here he is being sent out of Antioch. And he had about a year, I think, in this church in Antioch where Barnabas had gone 
and got him because he was being fruitful where he was and brought him to Antioch. And here he is ministering amongst the congregation. And then the church sends him out. It took Paul, Pharisee of the Pharisees, nor of the law, a decade for the Lord to prepare him for work overseas. Why are we in such a rush to send new Christians overseas? But Ryan, the urgency. You don't think they felt the urgency in the church in Antioch? And here we see Paul and Barnabas teaching. They're two of the five named teachers, and they're sent out. you imagine the next Sunday? They're off. You show up to church in Antioch. 40% of your preaching team, your teaching team, is they're gone. You've sent them out. There's a hole. We should send some of our best. Let's not cannibalize our churches to send out all of our best. We need healthy churches here in our communities to send out equipped missionaries. But friends, we should send some of our best. This church sent out one of its elders, Stephen. That's gospel sacrifice. In chapter 14 of Acts, Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch and report to the church all that the Lord had done. So it's the church under the authority of Christ and sensitivity to his spirit that affirm and commission and send out missionaries. And then hear a report back of what has been done. Common problem today is that churches outsort missions to the professionals, like missions agencies. So where are missions agencies in the Bible? Where is reaching and teaching and pioneers and frontiers and the IMB and all the other agencies? We're not in the Bible. Are, does that make us unbiblical? No, I hope. We could be unbiblical if we shortcut the church, but we're non-biblical. We're not in the Bible. Missions agencies bring unique things to the table that many churches cannot. Missions agencies are single-minded, which means that they think about missions alone. I don't think about the administering of the Lord's Supper in my job as the president of reaching and teaching. I do as an elder of my church, but my nine-to-five job, I think about missions all the time. All the time. It's what I do. Missions agencies are single-minded. We specialize. We're professionalized in key aspects of mission. How to get someone from point A to point B. How to learn language. How to learn culture. How to be secure. We're structured to accomplish strategic goals. And so there's ways that agencies can serve churches, but we must always affirm the centrality of the church in the sending and oversight of missionaries. And what happened, again, between 1888, maybe 20 years earlier, and today, churches became more and more convinced to just outsource it to the professionals. And what happens when you take the local church out of it is you don't have a lot of churches showing up in 1910. You have missionaries that have neglected the local church in many different ways showing up and having ecumenical conversations. And there's not one person in the room who's going, whoa, 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 whoa. Are we sure? Are we sure about this theologically? Are we sure? Local churches being convinced that their missionaries know more about missions than they do. Their aspiring missionaries know more about missions than they do. Pastors, don't give up the authority that you have to speak into the life of aspiring missionaries. I'm going to land on this. Friends, from the New Testament perspective, to be a Christian is to belong to a church. 
Christians should not be detached from the authority of the local church. We saw that in William Carey's life in 1793. To choose Christ is to choose his people. As we gather together under the lordship of Christ in obedience to his word as it's preached in observation of the ordinances that bind us together, as we love one another and we grow together in Christ, the world receives a clear picture of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. Consider all the metaphors in the scripture for the church. Family, we see relational intimacy and common identity. Body of Christ, where each member is mutually dependent on one another. We read about the temple of the Holy Spirit, where we see the church's special identity as God's dwelling place. The vine and the branch, where we see the church's dependent upon Jesus and the word for life and nourishment. The bride of Christ, where we see the treasured possession whom Christ has loved even unto death. These metaphors, especially horizontal images, are meant to be put into practices locally. And so aspiring missionaries in the room, I would encourage you, whatever you do overseas, have it connected to a local church. It is not wrong to dig wells as long as, as you are digging wells, you are evangelizing those that you are, dwelling, you are digging wells amongst. And as people come to Christ, ushering them into membership in a local church that can guard their life and their doctrine as you move on to the next place. And please, as you're going around and digging wells, make sure that you are anchored in a local church. Holistic ministry is not bad. But again, let's make sure that we are proclaiming the gospel of God as we go along. Otherwise, just go work for UNESCO and don't raise funds from well-meaning Christians thinking that they're supporting missions work. Every Christian, every missionary must, must submit themselves to the authority of the local church. Raymond, this morning you did finally, finally, so this is my finally, finally. <laughs> Think about the example that we're setting as Christians when we are missionaries overseas for nationals in the ministry location who already have a concept of American superiority in their minds, good or bad, where missionaries will not submit themselves to local church where they're serving. How can you teach pastors and leaders good ecclesiology and what it means to faithfully shepherd the church of God if you're not practicing the biblical pattern for life in the body of Christ? Stephen, I'm keep using him as an example. He's such a great example. Stephen leads someone to Christ. It's a new Christian. You need to go join a local church. Be baptized. Join a local church. Well, are you a member of a local church? No. I'm a member of a local church in Westchester, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia. How are you supposed to live out the Christian life that you've just told me all of these things about with people who are 8,000 miles away? How are they supposed to watch over your life in doctrine? I'm a missionary. Rules don't apply to me. What you're doing there is unintentionally setting up a two-class type of Christianity for new Christians. Life according to the missionary and the life for everybody else. And I know that's not what these missionaries are seeking to do, but that is what is being done. doesn't mean that your influence in ministry is contained within the walls of a local church, but it does mean that your identity is not rooted outside the walls. That watching world, those Christians uh, who are working amongst campuses, 
whose life is anchored and rooted in the local church are showing the watching world and campuses and communities and businesses and so on and so forth, wherever evangelism is happening, that their identity is with Christ and with his people. Those of you wanting to prepare for life as a missionary, this is my finally, finally, finally to you. Your best preparation for life as a missionary is to invest your life deeply in the life of a local church now. And if you are not invested deeply in the life of a local church now, friend, I would venture to say that you are disqualified from telling others coming to Christ around the world that they should do that wherever they are. All right? I didn't have finally, 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 finally. Let's you do have it. to say yes or no, and then you get one sentence, maybe two. Okay. And I'll cut me off. You know my and style. If you All right. have a question, you can just go ahead and go to one of the microphones in just a moment. Great. Uh, if we personally support someone who is not planting a church on top of our contribution to a church, uh, should we continue that support? Like, should you support missionaries? Should we support somebody who's not participating in the planting of a church? Do you want me to that, answer that with a yes or no? Yes or no, and one sentence on, on either side of that. I can't answer that with a yes or no. Okay, give me whatever one word you can give in your sentence. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> oh, man, Raymond, you're killing me. As long as that person's work is vitally tied to the building up or planting of or strengthening of an existing local church, I'm fine with that. Okay. Do you think David Platt's radical is a helpful manifesto for missions? Yes. And now give me your sentence. I read it in 2011, quit my job, almost went bankrupt, and now I lead a missions organization okay. because of that book. <laughs> Facing the task unfinished, is it a helpful hymn as we think of that? Just in light of yeah. Yes, Jesus is not yet back. I think Matthew 24, 14, this gospel will be proclaimed to the end of the earth, and the end will come, and all of Christ's elect, I'm a Calvinist, will be brought into the family of God, and Jesus will return. And he has not yet returned, and so we do have a, a task that's unfinished. Can we regain associationalism, like you described? Absolutely. And I'm seeing really cool examples of it in places like Charlotte, North Carolina, where an association of like-minded churches have worked to plant a church in Bangkok, and they get to really function together as an association as they do that. All right, the last one, and then we're ready for your questions. Do you own a Scottish kilt, and how does it help you reach the nations? <clears throat> I do own a Scottish kilt. It is currently being made. Who doesn't love a Scottish kilt? And I feel like it's going to help me mobilize. There we go. <laughs> name, church, question. My name is Nate. I'm from Faith Presbyterian Church in uh, Wilmington, Delaware. And uh, my question... Closer to the mic. Sure. Nate from Faith uh, Presbyterian Church. My question is about youth missions. Yeah. A lot of youth missions trips are much closer to the UN could do it than the church could do it. So how would you, re how would you respond to youth missions trips? Very nervously, because I think most kids on a youth missions trip, statistically, are not actually Christians. So I'm really nervous about youth missions trips. I think, uh, like, define youth. High school. Okay, there we go. That's a lot easier. I feel like I'm out of some hot water here. Um, 
I think that it is a helpful evangelistic opportunity in the life of the student that is going. I do not think en masse that it is going to be super helpful for the long-term building up and strengthening of the church overseas. I think there are times where I can point to youth going and participating in a camp where if it's tied in with a local church overseas and young children and their families overseas are being drawn in for this camp because there's some cool American kids, maybe. But I've got some major concerns, uh, particularly with the spiritual state of a lot of my friends that went on those trips when they were in high school and they not, they're not even Christian. So, I think, thank you. Yeah. How's it going? So, hi, Ray. Church. Ray, you know, you know my name. He knows my name, but okay. I want to know my your name. Carlos. Nice to meet you. What's your name? Ryan. Great name. Um, <laughs> you know, the, um, the part you got me, I'm, I, I try to make as. I came a little late, so I try to get as much as I. Okay. I'm gonna pick your brain. Tell me more about since I studied Hebrew recently. What you think of Melchizedek superseding the? Um, somebody help me. The in Hebrews to. Um, what you think of that uh, mystery man that Abraham? blessed because he was leading his army and paid tithes. What do you think of Melchizedek? You're asking me this in a missions lecture, Carlos? I have a, a way for you to answer that question. Isaac, raise your hand. You're going to talk to Isaac. He loves talking about Christology Boom. and typology. Boom. Boom. He's going to find you right I just want to ask you a question. I just want to make up for lost time. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. it. Joseph? Joseph Randall, Ani Baptist Church. Are you familiar with John Chow, killed 2018, trying to reach the North Sentinelese? Yep. Curious, uh, two things. What can we learn good about that? What, what can we learn that was bad? And I'm just curious about mission strategies from, from agencies like you reaching people that will kill you like that. Yeah. Uh, man, there's a lot. That's a loaded question. I'm going to try and be very, very succinct. As I understand it, that brother... Um, was discouraged several times along the way, specifically about that people group, and he went on it alone. Um, and I think it seemed, at least to me reading on it, it, it seemed he took a bit of a cavalier approach. I think we can learn um, that there is a fine line between cavalier and bold. Um, I want to commend young people to lay their lives down, and old people, but mostly it's going to be young people because of all that's required to do it. Lay down your life for the sake of the gospel. Make Christ known where he isn't. We, John Payton lost his first wife within months um, due to illness. It's not a bad thing to die for the gospel, but we need wisdom in how we go about it. Um, we all love Jim Elliott. We don't often talk about some of the conversation that was going on in the background that they were trying to discourage them from being so quick to jump into that people group. We gotta use wisdom. So I don't know enough about the particulars to say it was absolutely unwise to go to that people group, but I do think it was unwise for him to go alone. Um, but yet I love his heart for the gospel, and I, he was martyred. And we should praise the Lord for the example of martyrs. But uh, in terms of strategy 
for us amongst those unreached language groups? Is that what you're talking? Yeah, we are constantly now sending out teams, so several a year, to go to unreached language groups. Uh, and we're having serious conversations with their churches about, okay, at what point do you want to pull? And th these ones, you guys are going to meet uh, Brooks in February at the SNT. Brooks and his people are crazy. And they're teaching them, like, you need to die for the gospel. Crazy good. I love Brooks. He's one of my closest friends. Radius. So he's coming to me. He's coming. To, they're coming to us from Radius, and they're like, we are going to die for the gospel. And I'm like, okay, as your official employer, I just have some questions, and we need to talk with your sending church about how this is actually going to go down when the rubber meets the road. And so I'm getting on the phone with the pastor saying, okay, where's the eject button? And it's a very somber and real conversation to have with missionaries and their families and their pastors when they're saying there's no eject button. We're going all the way. My job is to push back wherever someone else needs to be pushed back and to advocate for the opposite, but at the end of the day, it's their decision. And the blood of the saints fertilizes the ground for the gospel. And we saw this, like John Payton, there were missionaries that died before he got there. And the Lord providentially used their example to bring people in the New Hebrides to Christ. So, that's a hard one. Yeah. Tim, then Leo. Yeah. Hi, Ryan. Tim Garber. I'm a member here at Christ Church. Um, and an elder. But I love that you introduced yourself as a member. That's great. <laughs> so good. Um, my question is, you, you spoke a lot about um, sending experts on to, to the field, which I love. I think my question is, is there a place for lay people to go and not necessarily be a pastor where, where they're going, but just live as a Christian in Japan alongside yep. Stephen Alexandra? And yeah. could, could, could you speak to that more? Like, should they be trained in a certain way before they go? And yeah, just if you could kind yeah, of absolutely. touch on that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's wisdom in sending people with a multitude of giftings to go and establish a church together. But I, I want my primary church planter or two or three to be experts in church, elder qualified. Um, we have a number of single ladies that just as complementarians, we would say are disqualified from the office of elder because they're ladies. Um, and we would see that as reserved for men in the New Testament. They're going on church planning teams and doing very, very vital work in terms of Bible translation, literacy training, so that people who don't have the Bible, can't even read yet, are going to one day be able to read and read the Bible in their language. Um, those are paramount tasks for people to be able to understand God's word as it's being preached and read it for themselves. Um, that's just one small example. People in global cities, if, if you have a trade, you should look at going to a global city. Being an evangelist for Christ in your community knowing that you're tied in with a local church so as people lord willing come to christ you're going to be able to encourage them to member well wherever you are we need good solid christians everywhere sharing the gospel so yes but when it relates to the task of church planting i don't want to send people who don't know what a church is yeah leo, leo paris uh, pastor of covenant fellowship church nearby um I had a similar question, but I have another question about just, um, is there a preference or methodological counsel you'd have of planting more in cosmopolitan urban places like Dubai, you mentioned, mm. 
versus your classic, you know, sort of uh, in the history lesson you gave us, you know, guy going out into the village in the bush or whatever, traveling around and planting little villages. Can you just comment on that? Yeah, I think, man, this is a really interesting missiological question for this moment because people are either, people are trying to either or that question. Right. Um, I think cities are becoming increasingly strategic, among, especially amongst unreached language groups, because of urbanization. So statistically, by 2050, the UN says that over 55% of the world's population will live in urban cities. Uh, I know of stories in places like Papua New Guinea where uh, missionaries went, they learned the language, they're getting ready to like, do the hard work of sharing the gospel for the very first time in an unreached language group, and a mining company comes in and says, we've just bought all your land. Um, from the government, and now you have instant diaspora, and they're being sent all over the place. That's a reality in the world that we're in. I think to neglect cities is to neglect a very interesting strategic opportunity to meet people as they're coming out of villages with a common trade language and sharing the gospel with them so that they can go and make Christ known amongst the people that they came from. And we do see that happening in places like Dubai and elsewhere. But we should also not neglect the, the, the work that needs to be done and assume that's going to happen. We should continue to send people who are laser-focused on unreached language groups. For me, I'm looking at it as a both-and. Um, and I think for our workers that are working towards getting to an unreached language group, they would not be upset if they're going to a village and they realize that because of the work in a major city, someone from that village has come to Christ, they would not go, are you kidding me? We just spent how many years learning the language and the culture to do this? No, they're going to say, we have a brother or sister now who's able to work with us in this work. So I'm going to argue for the both and. As pastors are considering where to send your people, I want to say that a lot of it depends on who you're sending. Um, I am a city boy through and through. I was looking eight years ago, nine years ago, about going to Mongolia to a village and was very quickly talked out of it by the missionary who was there because I am not cut out for rural life. And he was like, please, if you love us, do not come <laughs> because you will drive us crazy because I am not made up for rural areas. I'm a city guy. So are, are you sending out urban people or rural people? How are they going to be able to cope with it? What gift set do they have? If they have an aptitude for languages, send them to a place where they need to learn too, by all means. If they're getting a little bit older, you should probably send them to a place where they're only going to need to learn one language because that's probably all the time they've got. Uh, if you're sending um, someone with a PhD, do I necessarily think that a village of 3,000 people is the best place to send a PhD? Probably not. I'm not saying no, absolutely, but I'm saying there's probably more wisdom to putting them in a position where they can train up people to go and reach those areas in a more of a central location. So it's very nuanced all over the place, but yeah. Thanks. How does the vision that you gave us tonight relate to college and campus ministry? In particular, <clears throat> you think of urbanization and sending people to strategic places, but your focus was on the church. Oh yeah, I love campus ministries. They're great. Uh, I think college students are uniquely qualified to reach college students with the gospel. If I was to show up at Westchester right now, they'd probably like, call security. There's like an old man on campus. Um, that's just a reality. Or he's a professor, and they're staying away from me anyways. Um, 
I love the idea of having campus ministries running through local churches where students that are coming to Christ can be baptized into membership of that local church. Um, I know that's what you guys are doing here with Crew. I know it's happened in places all around the world. Um, so we should look at sending some of our young people to go do those types of works in healthy places with healthy churches. Um, otherwise, all the unhealth of campus ministries that we see here is going to get exported. And then a final question for you tonight. Uh, it seems you're not concerned with slowness. Uh, it takes a long time to raise up a missionary, but you're okay with it taking a long time to plant a church. Does that diminish our view of lostness in any particular way? No, I hope, I hope with all of my arm movements physically that you saw some urgency like, and passion. Like, these things are super important. There are billions of people who are currently dying without access to the gospel. That is catastrophic, and it should cause us to urgency, and the lostness of the world should draw us to our knees. But we are 2,000 years into church history, and there's still work to be done, and I want to make sure that we do it well. And we've just reviewed quickly 240 years of missions history. We don't know if the Lord's coming back in the next 24 hours, 24 years, or another 240 years, and there's just work to be done. And I want to make sure that we're doing it right and healthily, and we just leave the rest to the Lord. Yep. We only thank Brian for his time today.